Man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. Our hearts are idol makers. John Calvin said that. that my man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. How about Augustine or Augustine, depending on how you prefer to say that. He said, idolatry is worshipping anything that ought to be used and using anything that ought to be worshipped. We make good things, God things sometimes. You say, well, isn't idolatry a thing of the past, a thing of gone by, or a thing where somebody else, they make statues and they bow before them, and that's just what idolatry is, and since I don't have any statues, I don't have any idols. I remember one time fishing with my son, and we had this really generous doctor in Georgia who was friends of my mom, and he would let us come fishing at his pond. And so... Justin and I are fishing. The fishing's kind of slow. And the dock is building this new house beside his pond. And so we thought, well, let's just take a look inside because it's not finished yet. The door, there's no doors on it. I mean, things are open. And so we walk up to take a look inside. And on the lake side, you would be coming into what would be like the basement of the house. And so as soon as I walked in, there's this big statue of an idol. And I don't know which one it was. Some Hindu god. In his basement. Bigger than life. And I don't know what he did with that thing. But I got the creeps and we just turned around and walked out of there. The prophets could be kind of in people's faces about idolatry. Right? I mean God actually mocks people through his prophets. For taking a block of wood. And taking half of it and making a fire to eat their food. And the other half carving it into an idol and bow down to it. And see when we look at it in that way we see the foolishness of it. But, but what I want to warn you about is every day. If you're a believer, especially if you're a non-believer. But even as a believer, every day the gospel is coming into contact with your idols. It's not whether or not we have any idols. It's really, where are they? Let me boil it down to you. What is an idol? An idol is anything more important to you than the true God. An idol is anything more important to you than the true God. You say, well, wow, this is not much of a Mother's Day sermon. It really is. Mothers have idols too, so. No. <laughs> anything that excites your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. You look elsewhere for peace and satisfaction. Now I'll let you fill in the blank. You see, we have numerous idols of the heart. And sanctification or growth in grace is, is God delivering us from all of those things. So that we more and more and more are accurate as to what we sing, that God is our treasure. He's number one. He's all we desire, right? We sing better than we are. But there's grace for us because Christ come. He has come to die for our sins. He's paid the penalty for all of our idolatry. He has set us free from the penalty of our sin and He is setting us free from the power of it, the practice of it as we grow in grace. But if, you, if I define it that way, I hope that we can all see that we all still struggle with idolatry. 
Anything more important than God? Anything that excites you more than God? Anything you seek to give you what only God can give? Anything through which you view and interpret all of reality other than God and His Word is an idol. And today in Acts 14, 8 through 18, we see Paul and Barnabas, they encounter idolatry at Lystra. I mean, idolatry seemingly on steroids, right? They confront it with the gospel. And this is what, and they call for repentance. And if we're going to be faithful witnesses, we're going to be willing to call for repentance. And that's what they do in Lystra. And it, we'll, we'll see the stoning next week, but the people go from worshiping Paul to stoning him in a relatively short amount of time because he's not giving them what they want. He's not meeting their expectations. But what I, from verses 8 to 18, what I wanted us to see this morning is that God's goodness is manifest in every good gift. And we'll see that in the text. From the healing down to just what we would call common grace. We're looking at some rain providentially. Um, God's goodness and manifest in every good gift and His good gift should lead us to repentance from all idolatry. His good gifts are supposed to lead us to repentance. God's goodness is supposed to lead us to repentance. God's goodness is manifest in every good gift and His good gift should lead us to repentance from all idolatry. First, I want us to see that idolatry causes us to misinterpret God's goodness. Watch what happens in Lystra as we look at the, the first few verses here. But it says this, now at Lystra, now they've already left Iconium. They've gone some 18 miles south. They've gone, sort of generally speaking, from here to Jacksonville, away from Iconium, because not only did verbal persecution arise, they really wanted to stone them. They wanted to kill them. So they move on with the gospel to Lystra. And they're there preaching the gospel. Paul's doing the same thing he's done in every city. There's no mention of a synagogue in Lystra, so maybe there's not one uh, at this point. But it said at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. Now watch how watch the emphasis that is in the word that is making really clear that this guy was never able to use his feet. It says there was a man sitting there. He's listening to to Paul. Who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth. And he had never walked. I mean that's. Piling it up. But he couldn't use his feet. He was crippled from birth. He'd never walked. This reminds us of some of Jesus' miracles. And then you know Peter. Healing the, the, healing the lame man in chapter 3. But this guy has never walked. But in God's providence. He's there. He's listening to Paul. As Paul is preaching the gospel. And somebody had to bring him there. Obviously, he couldn't walk there himself. I doubt he had a scooter. But he's listening intently. It says in verse 9, he's listening to Paul speaking. And Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well. So Paul is preaching. He's preaching the gospel and, and there's this lame man. So, you know, as, as preachers, sometimes we, we recognize who's in the congregation and, and we have a responsibility to address Scripture or preach Scripture in such a way that will address the needs of the people to the best we can. 
that are sitting in front of us. And Paul can obviously see that this man's been lame from birth. His, his legs are shriveled. And so maybe like Peter did, Acts 10.38, when Peter was preaching to Cornelius' household, he, he was talking about Jesus and he said, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And he goes on to talk about his enemies, Christ dying and being raised and uh, the third day and, and preaching the gospel. But notice in the context of Peter's preaching, he was talking about Jesus' healing ministry. And perhaps Paul is sort of taking a page out of that. And as he sees this crippled man, he's talking about Jesus and his ability uh, to heal. And so the man's listening. He's intent. Uh, I don't know if he could scoot up to the edge of his seat, but every indicator he could give, he's tuned in to the message. And so Paul, being an apostle and being empowered by God, we've talked about this earlier in Acts, that not everybody was running around doing miracles. Okay, It's the apostles and associates of the apostles that were gifted with these ways, and especially the apostles because these were signs of an apostle. If everybody's running around doing miracles, then it's not really, it's just a sign of a person in Christ. These are signs of an apostle. These are Hebrews 2 confirming signs that show the message is true. And so Paul looks at him, insight from the Spirit, knowing that God is about to do something in him to make a point. He said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. Now wait a minute. Imagine that. Atrophy. Never used his feet. This is an obvious miracle. I mean, the guy can't just slowly get up and work it up, right? They didn't put him in the crowd. He wouldn't have been accepted in some of the healing things that go on today. He'd been shuffled to the back room. <clears throat> but seeing it, he said in a loud voice, stand up right on his feet. And watch this. He sprang up. He sprang up and began walking around. So this guy who'd never walked, never used his feet, crippled, carried around. He's there in front of Paul and you ever had a jack-in-the-box, kids? Probably not. They don't do stuff like that anymore. But you wind the thing and the music's playing and all of a sudden, boom! It jumps out. Scares you half to death if you've never seen one. This guy, bang, he jumps straight up immediately. And it's amazing. It's a sign of the truth of these apostles and the truth of the Word. It's a confirming sign of the Gospel. But watch how the people interpret it. They form it into their own worldview instead of repenting. They see it as a confirmation of what they believe and their idolatry. It says in verse 11, When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, in their own regional dialect, which maybe Paul and Barnabas didn't understand at that point anyway. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Uh-oh. The gods. What gods? Well, you know, the Greek pantheon adopted by the Romans into the Roman pantheon, but still, we're still using Greek names here. And he says, they said, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. 
Barnabas they called Zeus. And Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. So Zeus and Hermes have come down to us in the form of these men. See, the people see the sign, but they see the sign as a confirmation of their idolatry, and therefore they identify Paul and Barnabas with the mythology of the time. Zeus, the chief deity, has come down, and Hermes with him. Greek culture spoke of the divine man. There, there was a popular story that Zeus and Hermes had visited this area before. And the locals failed to acknowledge them and judgment followed. And it seems like they, believing that former lore, are determined to make sure that that doesn't happen again. So they identify Barnabas with Zeus or the chief deity known, known to the Romans as Jupiter. And they identify Paul as Hermes. Why? Because Hermes was the messenger of the gods. And Paul was the spokesman here. According to Greek mythology, Hermes was the god of oratory. He's equivalent to the Roman god Mercury. But notice how they're responding to a gospel-confirming sign. They're not seeing it as a gospel-confirming sign. They're seeing it as an idolatry-confirming sign. And instead of repenting, they're running headlong into their idolatry. And watch what they want to do then. They call Barnabas... Zeus and Paul Hermes, and at verse 13, and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanting to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Our gods have come. Zeus and Hermes. But when the apostles, now verse 14, you know, sort of shows that they didn't understand it first. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, when they heard of it, they heard of this idolatry. They heard what they were planning to do. They heard how the people had completely misunderstood the sign and, and evidently just completely ignored the gospel that he was preaching and saw this as confirming their idolatry. Just think about that for a minute. Idolatry puts us at the center, doesn't it? Because if we're if idolaters make their own gods or choose their own gods, it's like the doc in Georgia. Out of the millions of gods in, you know, in Hinduism, he had chosen his own, and I don't know what he was doing with it, but I have suspicion. But idolatry puts us at the center. We either craft our own gods or we choose our god. It's a god we can control. It's a God we can please. It's a God we can get stuff from. And it flows from a willful rejection of the true God. Where did all of this mess, and this is just a small sampling of it, where did all of this rejection of the true God and making up of our own gods, where does that come from? Well, obviously we know it flows out of the fall. 
men falling into sin. But thankfully, this same guy, Paul, answers that question for us in the book of Romans. A little bit longer text. I want to read it for you. You'll have it up here. Uh, but Romans 1, 18 to 25. Right after saying that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, as Paul begins to expand upon that gospel, his first task in Romans is to show that both Jew and Gentile are under sin and needing a Savior. And that wraps up after verse 19 in chapter 3, and then you begin to get justification by faith alone, and, and he moves on. But notice what he says right after he says the gospel. He says there's some bad news you have to know before the good news makes sense. And he starts out telling us where idolatry came from. So watch this in Romans 1, 18 to 25. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. We don't like to talk about that, do we? We don't like to talk about the wrath of God. But you need to. You need to embrace the bad news before the good news will be good news. We need to embrace the wrath of God against sin because it's true. Notice this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, watch this, suppress the truth. Not they're sinning because they have no idea of the truth of God. In favor of unrighteousness, they're suppressing the truth. They're holding it down. Kids, have you ever tried to take a big beach ball and hold it under the water? It's difficult, right? Because it, it wants to pop up. They're suppressing, they're holding down the truth in favor of unrighteousness. And they have no excuse for it. I had no excuse for it. But I remember doing it before coming to Christ. Verse 19, For what? now watch this. This goes against, we think we have to prove God exists to people. In order to witness to them. Don't we? Watch how the word of God describes our situation. For what can be known about God. Is hidden from them. Because God hid it from them. What can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. Now watch this. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Your friend or family member or you, if you claim to be an atheist or a non-believer in God, have no excuse for that. Because it's clear that there's a God. It's plain. He has shown it to all of us. How? Revelation. The creation is general. It's called general revelation. What is it revelating? What is it revealing? God. Read Psalm 19. I'm not going there this morning. And other Psalms like that. And other places like that. 
God in His Word says that His existence and power is so clear through what has been made that people are without excuse for rejecting it. We do reject it before we come into Christ, but we are suppressing that truth because we love sin. I remember that mindset. I came to Christ as an adult. If you don't, if you never knew a time when you didn't trust Jesus, praise God for that. That's the best testimony, right? But the Word says that everybody knows there's a God. They just don't like Him. Cy Chen Bruggenkate, you may have heard of him, was talking about talking to a friend who claimed to not believe in God and they were having lunch together and the friend said, you know what aggravates me, Cy? He says, you seem to be so sure that there's a God. How do you know that there's a God? You know what Sai said to him? The same way that you do. It brought tears to the man's eyes. Because he kind of been unmasked. You don't have to prove God to people. They know He exists. They just don't like it. Now look. For verse 21. For although they knew God... They, not, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Now watch. But they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to, their, to the lust of their hearts to impurity the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because... They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So where did idolatry come from? It came from rejecting the light of the true God, the only true and living God, and men making up their own gods as substitutes. Gods that were tamer. Gods that you could choose from. Gods that would you know, help you fulfill your destiny. Among other things. Idolatry comes from a rejection of the pure light. And so the Greek mythology, that's where it came from. The, the whatever form of that the people in Lystra are embracing. It's, it's in response to the true light of God. They are suppressing that truth. Choosing idolatry. That, and gods that they can please by sacrificing oxen. And bringing flowers to the gate of the city. The people honored their false gods for the healing instead of honoring the true God for the healing of the man, hearing the gospel and turning from their sin and trusting in Jesus. That's where idolatry comes from. That's where this form came from. That's what's happening in Lystra. And so how do the apostles respond? You know, they don't go out and say, well, it's okay, they're just worshiping God in a different way, but it's the same God ultimately. So, however men want to express themselves, as long as they're sincere, it's okay. No. It's not okay. Look what, secondly, the Gospel causes us to properly interpret God's goodness to leave idolatry. 
the gospel Paul was preaching and the gospel that was proven by the sign and ultimately proven by the resurrection of Christ is a gospel that calls us away from idolatry to serve the true and living God. You can go read First Thessalonians 1 and see Paul's testimony about them, how they turned from idols to the true and living God as a result of hearing the gospel. So look at what Paul, look at how they confront this idolatry. It says in verse 14, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments. Why? That seems weird to us, doesn't it? I mean, usually we get in a fight with somebody, they tear our clothes. But no, they ran, they tore their own clothes. That was a statement. That was saying what they were hearing was blasphemy. The tearing of the garments in, 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 indicates blasphemy, which is dishonoring God. What is that? They were denying that which is due and belonging to God and attributing to Him that which is not agreeable to His nature. They were not lining up with the truth of God, but they had crafted their own gods and given the glory to their own gods and seeking to worship their own gods, therefore rejecting the true and living God. And they were committing blasphemy. They were blaspheming. His name. Now watch what they said. Not only did they tear their clothes, they tore their garments and they rushed out into the crowd. They didn't stand up on a safe place in a hill. They rushed out to almost take hold of them and stop them from doing this thing. And look what they're crying out. Verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men. We are not Zeus and Hermes. We are men like you. Of like nature with you. And we bring to you good news. So see, Paul, he's going outside. You have completely misunderstood. We're not your gods. We are messengers from God with the gospel of God. What is the gospel, by the way? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that it's the good news about Jesus. Right? We were lost. We were in sin. Before God, we were under condemnation. Why? Because we have broken His law in thought, word, and deed. So He sends His Son to live under that law. You ever wonder why Jesus came and lived for a while? He's fulfilling the law that we had broken. He's keeping it in thought, word, and deed. And then He dies, not because He deserved to die, because He's the only one that didn't, He died to pay the penalty for our sins because the soul that sins shall die. Right? He took that upon Himself on the cross so that He could say it is finished. He was buried, conquered death, was raised the third day proving the Gospel's true. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. He is the only Savior. He's the only one who has died for our sins and been raised from the grave. And salvation is through trusting in Him. It's a free gift to you because He's earned it. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to clean up your act. You know why? You can't. All of our righteousness is filthy rags, Isaiah says. We can't prepare ourselves. We can't make ourselves acceptable to God. We simply receive the gift. He said, we bring you good news that salvation is a free gift. I had, some of you know that we've been sort of, or I have been sort of emphasizing and making you miserable with our responsibility to witness. And I committed to you that I'm going to restore that passion, God willing, pray about that and seek to be more active in witnessing. 
And, and I found that praying about it and thinking about it tends me to watch more closely and to not only take advantage of opportunities, but seek to make some. And the one guy, Jonathan, I would ask you to pray for Jonathan who came to my house um, to help a guy take off an old air conditioning unit that I was selling. And anyway, as he was there, he begins to, you know, sometimes people for no one, you don't, they don't even know you. They just start standing there and pouring their heart out to you. And he did. And he's facing what may be stomach cancer. And so basically I, I asked him if he was ready. What if it's the worst? What if you die? Are you ready? You know, it's easy to let that kind of thing go. And if I wasn't watching, I would have. And he said he didn't know. And I asked him, I, asked him, I said, do you know how that it can be that God can give you salvation as a free gift? And he said, no, but I got a feeling you're going to tell me. <laughs> this is what I said to him. Only if you want me to. He said, please do. So I was able to share the gospel with him. The good news that salvation is a free gift because Christ has achieved it through His death, burial, and resurrection. But Paul says, we're bringing you good news that, here's the purpose. Here's what the good news should produce in their lives. This, I'm back in verse 15. We're, we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God or to a living God. And I think what he's emphasizing there is there's not... 40,000 or 20 or 10, there's one. Turn from these dead gods, these imaginary gods, these false gods, to a true and living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He says, turn from these vain things. All idolatry is vain. Why? Because it's false. False gods are nothing. Paul says, in Corinthians, it's really worshiping demons. Because there's only one true and living God. I'll just give you a few verses and, and I'll move on. Psalm 96.5, now what we read this in our reading. All the gods of the peoples, in other words, all the gods people have made up are false. There's not a bunch of different ways to God. There's a bunch of different ways to judgment and condemnation and there's one way to salvation because there's only one true and living God. Look, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, old, old translation, I think Yahweh's better. The Lord made the heavens. There's only one creator. Jeremiah 10, 10 and 11, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation. Thus you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. Why? Because they're not real. Revelation 4. We, lo we love to read Revelation, right? Peek into the worship in heaven in chapter 4. Worthy are you, O Lord, our Lord our and God to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you created all things and by your will they existed and are created. Paul runs out and says, repent and give Him glory for the healing. Repent. Turn from this vanity of idols that is leading you astray. And give God glory. 
for, for this healing and for all expressions of His goodness. Quickly, God's goodness has already been witnessed to them through creation and He's just reminding them of that. He says in verse 15, You should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past, Now watch this. In past generations, He allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. What does that mean? He approved of it. It was okay. What it means is He didn't wipe them out. He allowed them to go their own way. He didn't bring immediate judgment. I mean, we wouldn't be here he allowed, because He's working out redemption in the creation that He has created to bring a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to Himself. It says, in past generations He allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet He, look, now watch this. Do you see these things as witnesses of God? Watch this. Yet He did not leave Himself without a witness. What are you talking about, Paul? Now watch what, are, what Paul says are witnesses to God. He did good by giving you rains from heaven. That word for heaven can mean sky, heaven or sky. Talking about, you know, obviously the first heaven or sky as we like to talk about it. By giving, he witnessed to his goodness by giving you rain and therefore fruitful seasons and therefore satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. You know, satisfying you with food and your hearts with gladness. That rain out there today is screaming to you that there is a God and that that is a good gift of His grace. What happens to us without that? The thunder that He so providentially timed out in my prayer to crack one open when I prayed Him thanks for the thunder testifying to his power that says nothing about me him he says rain and crops and food that you enjoy that's common grace in theological terms god is good to the evil and the just he he pours out his blessings on the earth sure times sometimes nations even israel was judged with lack of rain because of their sin but generally speaking do this Breath, that's grace. You don't deserve another one, nor do I. Rain, creation, trees, beach, sunset, go on, star. It's all shouting the glory of God. Psalm 19, go read. Paul says that God didn't leave Himself without a witness because He was satisfying your hearts with, with gladness coming from the, the food that you enjoy, which came from the rain, and then the rain feeding the crops and the fruitful seasons, yet you didn't acknowledge Him for that. You equated all, you just gave that to Zeus and Hermes or to chance or whatever else you like to relate it to. See, the resurrection proves everything I'm telling you is true. We interpret all reality by His revelation when we really are trusting Him and following Him. And Paul says, even rain was a testimony to you that God is here, that God is good, and that these idols are false. 
as passing, you know, allowing the nations to go their own way until he could bring his son and his salvation to pass. Acts 17, 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now, now watch this. God's serious about the gospel. You might be here today and you're not trusting in Jesus. And you're just, this is all just boring you to tears. Okay? I get that. I was that way. I was justifying my sin in various ways. But watch what this says. He's not playing. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He suggests all people everywhere to repent. Did I misread it? He commands you to repent and to trust in His Son. And you are without excuse for not doing so. And if we have done so, it's only because of a work of grace in our hearts. Times of ignorance, God overlooked. He passed over. He didn't immediately wipe out all the nations. But now He commands all people to repent. Why? Because He's affixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He's appointed, Jesus. And of this, watch, He's given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. You want proof? There you go. Christ was raised from the dead. It's all true. God commands us to repent because the gospel is true. And common grace just witnesses to the truth of the true and living God. Rain, food, gladness, all that from God. Not chance, not you, not an idol. The Lord. Every good and perfect gift, James says. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no various and a shadow of turning or change. He's immutable. I, I've got to, I have to quit, but I just want us to think about a few things before we go away. Because we can look at the idolatry of these people and we can say, that is so obviously wrong. We don't do that, so we're good. Right? We do the same thing when we see God's goodness as a confirmation of our own way instead of a manifestation of His grace. I would just ask you to think about where is your Zeus? Where is your Hermes? What false ideas do you have and you've used God's goodness to continue to embrace them? See, we let circumstances determine for us what is true and what is not, don't we? If things are going really good in our life, we must be good. You ever heard the expression, things will be, somebody will get a new car, or something good will happen to them, and one of their buddies will say, boy, you must be living right. You must have paid the preacher, whatever that means. But because things are going good, you must be good. I thought I knocked that over. I did. And when things are going bad, I must be doing something wrong. Of course, we misinterpret good and bad. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus said. And listen to this, and I want to warn you about this because I don't know where any of your hearts are. Sometimes we can justify sin. And because God is patient, we think He's justified it. I know people who have left their spouse for sinful reasons and because the heavens didn't fall on them, they think, must have been the right thing to do. No, and this is why.
We determine what's right and wrong by God's word, not by what we think or how we feel or how our circumstances are going. But we tend to think when things are good, we're doing good, and when things are bad, we're doing bad. That's not biblical. That's idolatry. That's self at the center. Because listen to me. Read Job. You can be doing as we see things, and I don't even like to use this language. You can be doing everything just right and everything fall apart as the way you see things. And you have to hang on to God's promises, right? Or you can be, this is what caused the psalmist to struggle. The people who completely reject God or just evil seem to be fat and happy. Circumstances don't determine truth. When I use God's goodness to justify my sin, I'm misusing His goodness. I am entering into idolatry. I am showing that I am on the throne, not Him. I mean, it's a crass illustration, but if I go rob a bank, by the way, have me locked up, please. If I go rob a bank and I get the money and I get away with it, and I'm able to feed my family with that money, ha, must have been God's will. Well, couldn't have done it if He hadn't permitted it, but it wasn't His moral will because He said, Thou shalt not steal. See, I can't use the fact that He delayed judgment on me as a justification for my way we need to see every ounce of God's goodness as fuel for repentance Romans 2 says God's goodness is meant to lead us to repentance let me give you a few facts and and I'm done fact one this is really if you get if you can embrace this you are a long ways down the road okay we deserve nothing good You deserve nothing good. Why? How do you know? All of our righteousness is filthy rags. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All deserve condemnation. The fact that we take another breath is God's grace. But we deserve nothing good. Especially we don't deserve the Son of God to come and sacrifice Himself to save us. Every good thing you have is a gift. Of God. Well, wait, I worked and earned that. Okay. Remember all those breaths and heartbeats you had to do that? The strength you had, the health you had. Where'd that come from? I, listen, I talk to people sometimes who think, I don't need Christ. Everything's good in my life. No, they literally say that to me. I'm happy. My kids are doing good. I have plenty of money. I have a nice. What do I need God for? Oh, I don't know. Hell? Condemnation? Salvation? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Ladies too. Kids too. You don't know how many days you have. Everything in this life should lead us to repentance. To realignment. To rethinking. To seeing all things the way Paul is telling them to see things. To turn from the vain things of idolatry. And to hope and trust and rest in the true and living God. Through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Recognizing that every ounce of anything good we have. Is from Him. God is passionate that we will listen to Him. He is passionate that we will believe Him. He is delivering us from idols and all idolatry and sin. And sin ensnares us. Hebrews 12. But listen to this from Isaiah. And I'm, I'm about done. 
48, 17 to 18. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, look at the passion there. Oh, that you paid attention to my commandments. God says to idolatrous Israel through Isaiah and through them to us. Oh, that you paid attention to my commandments because, back it up, therefore your prophet, they're leading you in the way you should go. Then your peace would have been like a river, even in the midst of your storm. And your righteousness like the ways of the sea. God's Word must be the grid through which we interpret all of reality. The resurrection proves the Word is true. That's what Paul is telling the people there. And he's helping them reinterpret things, not in light of their false gods, but in light of the true God who gives us rain and food and joy and gladness and who pleads with us to hear Him, to listen to Him, to believe Him, to trust in His Son, to walk in His ways. For they are our prophet, our good, and our joy. Only the Gospel leads us to the true understanding and the true relationship with the one true and living God. Mothers, I hope you are all embracing the Gospel and I hope you are teaching your kids the Gospel. Same thing for you fathers. We'll talk about that on your day. The best message you could have heard on Mother's Day is a gospel message to either confirm you in your faith or draw you to grace in Christ. As Augustine said, idolatry is worshipping anything that ought to be used and using anything that ought to be worshipped. Jesus paid the price for our idolatry. Jesus purchased our freedom from idolatry. And as Paul preached to the Lystrans, if you would call them that way, say that that way, Turn from these vain things to the living God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and see all things through His grace, His gospel, and His word. That will be for your profit. That will be for your joy. That will be for your righteousness. Trust and rest in Him. Let's pray. Lord, thank You that Your Word warns us, that Your Word calls us to faithfulness to You. That Your Word clearly shows us what sin is and why we need a Savior. And that Your Word didn't, that You didn't stop with just general revelation in creation, but You gave us special revelation in Your Word. That yes, shows us how sinful we are, but shows us the mercy of God available in Christ Jesus our Lord, who lived for us, who died to pay the penalty for our sins, and who was raised from the grave, proving it all to be true. Lord, I pray for those maybe listening here in the building or over the internet that don't know you, that you would open their eyes to the truth of the gospel, that you would deliver them from their rejection of your goodness and your grace to a reception of your salvation and your son. Refresh those of us who do know you, but life's just been hard and we're a little beaten down and, and, and just sort of losing hope, Lord. Refresh us in the gospel. Give us strength by your spirit. Give us a desire for and a faithfulness to be pouring into your word, to be pouring out our hearts before you. And Lord, those of us who are walking at this moment in health in Christ, may we not take it for granted. May we not start presuming, but may we continue 
diligently pressing into your grace and loving you and serving you and living for you. Lord, deliver us from every idol that has a foothold in our heart. Grow us in grace and set us free. We know that's your, your will for your children. And may our eyes be set, our faith be set, our hope be set on the true and living God and His salvation through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. By the power of the Holy Spirit. It is in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.